Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, September 21st, 2010. We all know that Stephen Furtick is going to preach for 24 hours. He's preaching. He's currently in the middle of it right now to uh, draw attention to his brand new book, Sun Stand Still. He's going to preach for 24 hours. But he's going to be tired at the end. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Yeah, this, this, kind of a barn burner today on the sermon review. Um, <sighs> I'm just reeling because I know what it is that I'm going to be reviewing today. And, oh, man, it's bad. Uh, and it, funny enough, it kind of fits into the gen- general genre of uh, of what Pastor Stephen Furtick is uh, writing about. Um, the, our sermon review, I'll talk about that real quickly. Our sermon review comes to us today in hour number two via a church called the Dream Center in Los Angeles. This is a church in which Perry Noble has preached. And the Dream Center is kind of well known among the seeker-driven and purpose-driven crowd. And uh, more and more, I think the seeker-driven, uh, purpose-driven message, gospel, has basically become a, a light version of the prosperity gospel. And uh, I have a, a, an advanced preview copy of uh, Stephen Furtick's book, Sun Stand Still. I got it at uh, uh, the leadership conference last week at uh, Perry Noble's church. And, you know, it's what I'm seeing over and again. It'll work with me here for a second. Um I might revisit this idea uh, again later in the program, but um, I remember being, you know, dabbling with the Pentecostal movement back in the uh, in the late '80s, and I mean, what it did is set up this kind of a two tiered Christianity, and the idea was is that you are not really experiencing the fullness of Christianity unless you speak in tongues. In fact, um, if you were not a Christian who spoke in tongues. You just weren't in the know. You weren't on God's really good side. You weren't part of the elite group of Christians, and um, and 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 then you know, as a Nazarene, you weren't really part of the elite group of Christians. You were kind of a backsliding Christian if you went to movies or you danced or you listened to rock and roll music or you did you know you, you listened to secular music. You weren't really. You were you were in the second. T- you were kind of like the Christian lower class. The the Christian. 
uh, well, the, the, the people who were living on the south side of the tracks in Christianity. And what I'm finding in the seeker-driven, purpose-driven movement, uh, in, in, that uh, Rick Warren's purpose-driven message is, is kind of, it's, it's, it's a weed that's growing in a bizarre direction. And now he, here's the deal. You are kind of a, a second-class Christian if you, if you don't have this audacious big purpose or dream for your life. And you and you you don't have the audacious faith enough to ask God for the impossible, and to uh, and you 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 don't you're not experiencing this this grand huge grandiose thing where you're you're doing the impossible. I mean, Stephen Furtick opens up his book. I I kid you not. Hang on a second here. Um, this is how it feels. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is the prologue to his book. I read. <clears throat> The name of his prologue, by the way, is This Is How It Feels. Let me, let me read this. Uh, Stephen Furtick writes, he says, I, I, I can't lie. It's a pretty cool feeling to have Bono as your opening act. You're going, Stephen Furtick had Bono as his opening act? No, not really. It's not like Stephen Furtick you know, you know, invited you 2 and Bono to open up their church service. That's not what he's talking about. But l- listen to what he says. Even if this uh, show was... Uh, Four and a half years before ours, even yeah, <laughs> I can't lie. It's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool feeling having Bono as your opening act, even if his show was four and a half years before ours. Notice he used the word show. My friend Eric was the first one to make the connection for me. He brought it up as we drove past the seemingly endless line of people waiting outside the Time Warner Cable Arena in Charlotte, North Carolina. It was Easter Sunday, two thousand and ten. Uh, the people were all hoping to get in the front door for the for the Easter service put on by our church, Elevation Church. Seeing how the line of people wrapped around the building took my breath away. Taking in the scene, Eric asked, Remember when we were standing in that same line when we first moved here, waiting for the U2 show? Yeah, kind of. That seems like a lifetime ago. Remember... What you said to me when the Edge started playing the opening riff of City of Blinding Lights, you were screaming over the music. You looked up toward the nosebleed section and told me that one day our church would fill that arena for a worship service. I did, I did, didn't I? It was all coming back to me. You did. You said that. Did you really believe it would happen? Yeah, I did. I, I really, I, I really believed. Well, it's happening right now. Look at all those people. This is crazy. Yeah, this is crazy. But the truth is, crazy didn't come close to describing it. This moment at this arena was the most surreal moment of my life. It was a culmination of the most audacious dream I had ever dared to entertain. The dream was happening. You see, just four and a half years ago, I was a 25-year-old kid moving to a new city with a few other families in tow. We had no connection, very little strategy, even less experience, just a dream to start a church and change the world. And we had a whole lot of faith. Now in about an hour, I'll be stepping on a stage to preach to well over 10,000 people in the largest venue in our city. This was our church. This was our moment. This was God's answer to our prayers and the reward of our faith. This was his moment? 
isn't a pastor supposed to be preaching and teaching in such a way that when he preaches, it's always Christ's moment. It's all about Christ. He's pointing us to Christ. I mean, that's just a teaser for uh, you know what's in this book. And um, I, I got to tell you, you know, this is, it's bad, bad theology, allegorizing of a text from the book of Joshua and misapplying it and basically creating this second tier of Christianity now. Yeah, the, the second tier isn't based upon whether you speak in tongues or uh, whether you uh, live a morally outstanding life and and uh, you don't uh, you know buy into secular music or movies or dancing or smoking or anything like that. But no, 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 no. This next tier is those who are—this is an elite inner circle of Christians. This elite inner circle is comprised of those who have an audacious faith, those— Unlike other people who 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 just have common and ordinary faith to do ordinary things, you know, be a mom, be a dad, go to work, work in a cubicle. Yeah, no, 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 no. The, the, this new inner circle, this new elite, they're capable of filling stages that normally rock and roll groups would fill. Yeah, they're out there changing the world in massive ways because they have audacious faith. Yeah, the emphasis is all wrong, isn't it? It's not pointing us to Christ. It's actually pointing us away from Christ. Let's uh, listen in. Uh, Stephen Furtick right now, I mean, he you know, to, to gin up, uh, you know, uh, uh, media coverage for his uh, new book, Sun Stand Still. He's currently in the process of preaching for 24 hours straight. Uh, let's let's listen in just for a couple minutes, see what he's up to. You know, the, because you know it's all about Stephen Furtick's audacious faith, one step at a time. Maybe maybe it would be helpful today, instead of you trying to figure out, okay, what is the impossible thing that God wants to do in my life? How does God want to? bless me in an audacious way, and trying to put it all together and map it out for the next 30 years, maybe you could just ask God to be your guide and to show you the next turn you need to make. God, what road do I need to be on right now? What sacrifice do I need to make right now? And the thing about the guide is, the guide has top secret information that you don't have. My father-in-law is a big fisherman, and he lived in Miami, Florida for 11 years. My wife grew up there. And Merle used to tell me that even though he lived in Miami and went fishing in the general area all the time, when he really wanted to catch fish, he said he would hire a guide to charter a boat and take him to where the fish are really biting. And I said, well, Merle, that doesn't make much sense. Don't you feel like you knew enough about where the fish would bite? You fish all the time and pretty much a local, and it seemed like to me you would have enough expertise, you wouldn't need a guide. And he said, um, he said, there's something about a guide that the guide has, has some sort of um, advantage over the guy who just fishes every once in a while because that's all the guy does all the time. That's his whole job. That's his whole life. That's his whole, that, that, that's his whole um, obsession is to find where the fish are biting. And so I'd rather have a guide who does this all the time than just go out there on my own. And, and, and try to make the best of it that I can. And so when Jesus came walking up on the shore 
And he said to the disciples, have you caught any fish? And they'd been fishing all night, and they caught nothing, right? And they were fishing where they knew to fish. I mean, they were expert fishermen. These guys fished for a living. And so, have you caught anything? Oh, we hadn't caught caught anything all night. And Jesus said, throw your net on the other side of the boat. What was he doing? He was the fishing guide. And so Jesus shows up and he says, I know you boys think you know all about fishing. I know you think you know the rules. I know you think you know the strategies. I know you think you know the, 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 the patterns of when the fish bite. I know you think you know the, the spots you need to hit. But, but I'm the guide and I know something you don't know because I created these waters that you're fishing in. And I created these fish that you're fishing for. And so if you'll cast your net on the other side of the boat, even though it doesn't seem to make sense, even though you don't think I know anything about fishing because you think I'm just a rabbi, not a fisherman, you think I'm a carpenter, but I don't know anything about your specific profession, if you'll do what I say, I'm the guide, and I know something you don't know. So just do what I say. Cast it on the other side of the boat. I know it sounds ridiculous. I know it's been all night, but I'm the guide, and I'm privy to information. I've seen a map you haven't seen. I know some things you don't know. God would say that to you today. He wants to be your guide. Quit trying to piece together guidance and just start trusting in the guide. Know the guide. Ride with the guide. If you ride with the guide, you can never get lost. If you'll stay with the guide, you're going to get there. might seem like it's taken a while. You might be confused. You might pass by some ways you've never passed by before. But if you'll stay with the guide, he will be your guide forever and ever as Aaron begins to play let me let me close this segment of teaching with okay uh that's just you know that's happening as i'm recording here um you know Stephen Furtick you know, basically uh, uh taking uh John chapter 21 out of context and basically saying that it's important that uh, Jesus be your guide because Jesus in John chapter 21 was a fishing guide for the um Yeah, for the disciples. Um, well, um, let's take a look at the text to see what's going on there, because there's actually two instances where, um, where Jesus is a quote fishing guide, and both of them are important. Uh, but let's take a look at John chapter 21 real quick. Yeah, a little sermon. I mean, since he's you know preaching for 24 hours, I thought I had to tune in here. Um, John chapter 21. This is after Jesus' resurrection. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going to go fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put out his outer garment, for he was uh, st- uh, striped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragged the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. You think in John chapter twenty-one, Jesus was being a fishing guide because you know Jesus knows how. You know, if you just let him be your guide, he'll help you. 
you know, hauling the big haul of fish. You think that was the point of the miracle? No, it was to reveal that it was him. It was to point to him, the resurrected Lord and Savior. Now, ironically, that's not the first time Jesus uh, gave instructions regarding fishing uh, to the disciples. And um, let me read to you the uh, account in Luke chapter 5. It's neither case is this about Jesus letting Jesus be your fishing guide. Uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 1, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to uh, Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Okay? So Jesus hired Peter, so to speak, to use his boat so that he can preach to the crowd on the shore. And afterwards, he told Peter, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to the partners uh, partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled the other boats so that they began to sink. You think Peter's going, wow, cool, I just won the lottery. I'm so glad I let Jesus be my fishing guide. No, watch what happens. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me. I'm a sinful man, Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Yeah, see, already, I mean, just randomly tuning in to Stephen Furtick's 24 hours of preaching regarding sun stand still and having audacious faith and having a big dream from God so that you can have a big purpose and pull off the impossible... The scripture tells us that we as Christians are to work quietly with our hands, minding our own business, loving and serving our neighbor in our vocation, vocation of mom and dad, son, daughter, student, employee, husband, wife, child. Scripture doesn't call us to do the impossible. That's not normative. And you can love and serve Christ, and you are not a second-class Christian if you are not filling arenas or if you're not doing the impossible. You are serving and loving Christ and loving your neighbor in the vocation God has put you in. That means it's okay for you to be a Christian and to be a trash collector. It's okay for you to be a Christian and for you to work at McDonald's. God doesn't love you any less, and your purpose isn't any less significant. You can actually love and serve God even if you, when you pray the sun doesn't stand still but continues riding its circuit, rising in the east and setting in the west. Yeah, sun stands still. Yeah, I don't think so. Anyway, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on the rest of the program today. I've gone a little long here. I just had to tune in 
to uh, Stephen Furtick and see what he was up to with Sun Stand Still. I, I just knew that if I, I hit the play button at any random point, it would yield false teaching because his emphasis is not on Christ and him crucified for our sins and humbly serving and loving our neighbor in the vocation God has put us into. But instead, it's all about, you know, he's validating the the movie that is his life, where Jesus makes a cameo appearance and Jesus is the guide. He's the coach who helps Stephen Furtick pull off the impossible. <sighs> Unbelievable. Anyway, so um, today on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, there was an email that I wanted to get to yesterday that I didn't get to. I want to uh, answer that today. Kind of an important email. It's a little bit sobering. We'll talk about that. And then uh, on, on to the uh, stories that we could talk about today. Uh, we got the story from The Guardian in the UK. Uh, the, the Pope's astronomer, apparently there's a Catholic astronomer in the Vatican, uh, said that he would baptize an alien if it asked him to. And so we'll read that story. I got a story here from the Christian Post. Christians urge bold new plans to achieve uh, millennium... Um, the development goals, MDGs, we'll talk about that. And then hopefully we'll get to this uh, the uh, Ed Stetzer piece that we didn't get to yesterday, the contextualization spectrum. So, And then in our sermon review in the second hour, it's called Dream Killers from the Dream Center in Los Angeles, a place where Perry Noble has preached. And I think we're seeing really the uh, the creation of a new purpose-driven theology where you are not really you're you're a substandard christian if you don't have big dreams for your life and uh, an audacious uh, if you're not dreaming the impossible so yeah we'll we'll yeah save the rest of that for our sermon review in the second hour so lots of stuff to talk about today so let's just uh, dive right in Brian from uh, Vancouver, Washington, sends me an email. And the headline, the subject reads, Answer Me This. So, so, <laughs> sounds like something I'm getting from the Riddler. Riddle me this. Um, and it's kind of a sobering email. And the, the reason I'm, I'm answering this one is because I totally understand where he's coming from. I've had to wrestle with these questions myself. And so... Uh, Brian writes, he says, there's something that's been lurking in my thoughts for some time, but has recently come to a head. I wonder if you can help. Well, I'll take my best stab at it. He says, what kind of God creates billions of human beings, beings who are born as slaves to sin, consigning them to an eternity of torture in the lake of fire just so that he can show everybody how powerful he is? Um, oh, I'm, I'm happy for you and me, but the vast majority of people whom he creates, billions and billions of people, are not so lucky. They didn't ask to be created. Honestly, my dog is better off than they are. At least dogs don't go to hell. Adam and Eve had a choice, and we don't have a choice. We can't help ourselves. We are born uh, to sin. We're by nature objects of God's wrath, and out of his grace, he flips a switch and a select few and causes them to repent and believe. Honestly, the more I learn about him and the more uh, the more I don't like him, either he is the way uh, he is the way or the Bible is wrong. Either way, I have a problem. Sorry, bro, but that's just where I am right now. I, I feel as if I'm in the Christian equivalent of the pit of despair. Can you help me out? Um, uh, Brian, I, I actually get, uh, I, I, I've, I've struggled with this myself and, um, I, I want to lovingly point something out to you. The problem isn't God. 
And the way you frame the question, the way you're struggling with this, the problem is in how you frame the question. Let me let me point go back to what you point out. He says, "What kind of God creates billions of human beings, beings who are born as slaves to sin, consigning them to an eternity of torture in the lake of fire, just so that he can show everybody how powerful he is?" Yeah, see the the question's a loaded question. The question is a loaded question, and the problem is is that the way you've framed the question, the automatic conclusion that you come to, the way you're asking the question, is that there's something wrong with God and that he's some kind of sick being that uh, that cr- just basically creates people to kill them and torture them and, and to send them to hell. Uh, yet, when we look at the scriptures w- regarding this question— that's not how that's not the God who's revealed in scriptures at all okay let's uh, let's spend a little bit of time in the Bible here uh, I think that's first Timothy chapter two um, yeah let's see here um, let's uh, I'm gonna read here first uh, Timothy chapter two first of all I urge that supplications uh, f- uh, verse one I first of all I urge that supplications prayers intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all who are on high positions, that we may lead peaceful and a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles in the faith and truth. So what we learn from 1 Timothy chapter 2 is the problem isn't God, the problem really is us. In fact, God, God, desired, it's his desire that everybody would be saved. That's his longing. That is his desire. That really is is at, in the center of God's heart, if you would, that all would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So what we find out just from this passage, okay, is first, you know, first and foremost, the problem is not God. The problem is us. God's desire is that all would be saved. God, in fact, his desire is such that he has gone through to such great lengths. I mean, I mean, going even so far as sacrificing his own son on the cross for our sins. And that's what verse 5 starts off with. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And then we read in Romans, you know, that for a good person, someone might dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were powerless, in yet while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, what's going on here, Brian, and I've wrestled with this myself, the problem isn't God. When we look at the evidence in the Scripture that it's not his will that any should perish, that all should be saved. That's his desire, okay? Who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And that Christ's death on the cross was for the sins of the world. The problem isn't God. 
the problem isn't God. In fact, your question mischaracterizes God. Your question, the way you framed it, uh, the God that you're describing there, I would hate him too. In fact, it's not based upon what God has revealed about himself and his heart and his desires. But instead, it's really kind of, it's, it's, a, it's an unflattering and untruthful mischaracterization of God and his desires. God doesn't want to send people to hell just to demonstrate how powerful he is. It's his will. It, he, he desires all people to be saved. So the problem is in the way you've framed the question. It's a loaded question. And the data in the question that you've loaded is so skewed and paints such an inaccurate picture of God that uh, the God you've described is not the God of the Bible. It's not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit whom you are describing. You are actually describing, for lack of a better way of putting it, either a demon or you're describing Zeus, but you're not describing the God of the Bible. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me and my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put dang. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren are four weapons. Now, amongst our weapon are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll I'll come in again. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? 
You want to say what the bit about our cheap weapons are? Uh, I I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I know, I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven Inquisition. In fact, those who our do... Chief ex- weapons are... Our chief weapons are... Um, purpose. Uh, uh, vision. Okay, and- okay, stop, stop that, stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah, 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick, read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now... How do you plead? Well, we're innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big-table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guise who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture, over the years they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so. And And the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR, or call them at area code 425-533-8659. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. 
Warning, if you think audacious faith is something that you do, you don't understand what faith is. Yep, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. You know, during the break, I was thinking about this. You know, um, (laughs) the subtitle here, um, what uh, what happens when you think, uh, when you... uh, Let's see here. What's this? Hang on. I can't. There's a sticker over. What happens when you dare to ask God for the impossible? Uh, Stephen Furtick's book. Yeah, Sun Stands Still. Yeah, the thing is, is that if you are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for salvation, you are believing for the impossible. Yeah, uh, Jesus's words from Matthew chapter 19 come to mind. And you got the rich young ruler coming to Jesus and then leaving, uh, you know, leaving, uh, you know, kind of sad and despondent after Jesus cranks the law up on him. And uh, Jesus says this in Matthew 19, verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, keep in mind, back in those days, I mean, somebody who was wealthy, I mean, you know, it's like today, it's easy to think, well, that person's blessed of God. Jesus is not, you know, wealth is not a blessing in many ways. He's saying it's a curse here. And he's, and so the disciples are astonished by what Jesus said. And, and when the disciples heard this, they were astonished at saying, well, then who can be saved? <clears throat> Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. What's impossible? Salvation. But with God, all things are possible. So you already, if you are trusting in Christ for your salvation and the forgiveness of sins, you are already believing for the impossible. Yeah, and saying that I have an audacious faith is ridiculous. Okay, faith is a pass-through. I have an audacious Savior. He's done the impossible. He's died for my sins and rose again from the dead on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Talk about an audacious Savior. Yeah, he's done more than make the sun stand still. He made the sun. He's done more than make it stand still. He's risen from the grave, for crucified for my sins, and raised on the third day for my justification. You know, basically, you know, Stephen Furtick's book has us looking in the exact opposite direction, has us looking to ourselves in the name of having big faith. (sighs) Just unbelievable. Anyway, moving along. (laughs) I I don't feel better after saying that. I just had to get it off my chest, though. So, yeah. Um, Chalk this one up to the Twilight Zone files. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into 
the Twilight Zone. Yeah, that was uh, in honor of the story I'm about to read. Headline reads, Pope's astronomer says he would baptize an alien if it asked him. Yeah, that's wow. Um, (laughs) This is by Alok Ja of The Guardian in the UK. Uh, Aliens might have souls and could choose to be baptized if humans ever met them, a Vatican scientist said today. The official also dismissed intelligent design as bad theology that had been hijacked by American creationist fundamentalists. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> what? Guy Consalmongo, who is one of the Pope's astronomers, said he would be delighted if intelligent life was found among the stars. Quote, but the odds of us finding it, of it being intelligent, and of us being able to communicate with it, when you add them up, it's probably not a practical question. Yeah, see, kind of like when you add up the odds of us, you know, evolving from nothing. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, but I'm just a creationist fundamentalist, apparently. Speaking ahead of a talk at the British Science Festival in Birmingham tomorrow, he said that the traditional definition of a soul was to have intelligence, free will, love, and uh, freedom to love, and freedom to make decisions. Quote, any entity, no matter how many tentacles it has, has a soul, would be, uh, would he baptize an alien? Only if they asked. So... Yeah, so if you're looking, any of you aliens out there that are listening to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio, I know that you're like, you know, monitoring this signal. I I, I just feel it in my bones that, uh, you know, the intelligent alien life out there that, you know, you, so just want to pass this along to you. If you want to get baptized, don't come see me. Go see Guy Consalmongo, Magno, yeah, the Pope's astronomer. <laughs> oh, man. You just you know, <laughs> I'm I'm so glad that the you know, most brilliant <clears throat> guys are over there in the Vatican, you know, because I'm just a creationist fundamentalist, you know. Anyway, moving along. <laughs> All right, uh, from the Christian Post, Christians urge bold new plans to achieve MDGs. <clears throat> that would be uh, Millennium Development Goals. Just you know, before I start this, um. I, I'm not familiar with that passage in the Bible that talks about us as Christians going out and achieving Millennium Development Goals. Just that one just seems, uh, you know, I'm I'm not familiar with that verse. If you know that one, folks, could you email it to me? Um, no matter how whimsical the interpretation requires you to be. Have anyway, uh, <clears throat> this is by Nathan Black of the Christian Post. He writes, Christians across the globe have called for bold new plans and real progress on the Millennium Development Goals as world leaders meet this week in New York City. Quote, we must see real progress this week, especially in developing an effective accountability mechanism which will hold governments to account for clear targets every year for the next five years, said Tier Funds Advocacy Director Paul Cook. A three-day summit at the United Nations headquarters opened on Monday with a plea by Secretary General Ban Ki-moon to, quote, keep the promise of helping the world's poor by 2015. Quote, there is no global project more worthwhile, Bon said. Quote, let us send a strong message of hope. Let us keep the promise. Ban convened the summit to accelerate progress on the MDGs as 
The five-year countdown to the target date for their fulfillment begins. The MDGs, which were devised in the year 2000, include having extreme poverty by half, seems redundant, have, uh, halting the spread of HIV-AIDS, providing universal primary education, and reducing by two-thirds the under-five mortality rate. So there you, I mean, yeah, so Christians, you got you, you to gotta change the world, man. The, the United Nations is counting on you to create real accountability for some real results. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, let me, uh, ahead of the summit, Christian leaders from the World Evangelical Alliance, the Salvation Army, the Anglican Communion, Micah Challenge, and Sojourners. Hmm, Sojourners. You mean so, Sojourners, the group that's heavily funded by... George Soros, the uh, communist. Okay, yeah. Uh, They sent a letter to the U.S., the African Union, and the European Union calling for, quote, clear and strong commitment to the promises made. We got to we got to have poverty, got to cut it in half. We got to stop the spread of a and these are I mean, these are fine and dandy things. I mean, I think that Christians should love their neighbors in such a way that they help them regarding AIDS and and befriend their neighbors, you know, who are who are poverty stricken. But real accountability, hmm. Real accountability in cutting global poverty, hmm. How are we going to do that? How is that going to happen? Hmm. You know, um, once you grant the that the problem is the, the the problem is is that it's not fair that there's this thing called global poverty. Then, well, the only solution that I can think of that's practical would be to you know take the money away from all the rich people and redistribute it to the poor so that the, so that we can, you know, <clears throat> level things out. I mean, because if we can level things out, then we don't have to worry about rich and poor anymore. Everybody would have nothing, pretty much. Yeah, once you grant that that's the problem, the only solution seems to logically be global communism. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, and I just don't, you know, I, I'm just going to go with Jesus. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching him everything that he said, and, you know, and proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins <clears throat> in his name to all nations. So, yeah, uh, as soon as we're done with that, okay, you folks in the U.N. And, and sojourners and these other groups, as soon as we're finished with the task of making disciples of all nations— and proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins to uh, all nations, um, then, as soon as, in fact, I promise, as soon as we're done with all of that, then uh, we'll get, I'll I'll get busy on the MDGs. Yeah. Moving along. (laughs) Part seven, the calling for contextualization, the contextualization uh, spectrum. Uh, Ed Stetzer, the great missiologist, um, and guy who's calling for contextualization, and of course, defending you know, what we've learned is is that the word missional has no real meaning, and that he would never use it in a way that would actually say that somebody's using it incorrectly. So, I mean, that being the case, I mean, you can say if you're being missional, if you're making a, if you know, you're making toasted cheese sandwiches, and you you're using a a, a, a device to make it so that the cross is on one side, and that Mary and the and uh, the baby Jesus are on the other side of the toast. That would be missional. <clears throat> yeah, well, if it doesn't mean anything, I mean, you can make it mean whatever you want it to mean, and that's what missional would mean to me. 
Don't yeah, don't ask why. It's best if you don't ask why because questions like that are best saved from a therapist. Anyway, um Ed Stetzer has a new piece at the Christian Post called The Contextualization Spectrum, and he deals with some of the the criticisms, uh, uh, recent criticisms regarding mixing culture and Christianity. And, of course, since he's a missiologist in calling for, you know, a, you know, a right use of culture, let, let me read what he writes. He says, you've heard me say that the, the how of ministry is in many ways determined by the who, when, and the where of culture. What you name a church, how long a worship gathering lasts, the way a church will develop leadership and much more is shaped in part by our culture. Why should the culture determine how long a worship service is? Why should the culture have any say it whatsoever in what it needs to in, in leadership development within the church? Jesus gave us a leadership model. Why would we want to adopt a different one that's more conducive with the quote culture? So, I say immediately we got problems here. So it's important to think in terms of a contextualization spectrum. Oh, okay. When it comes to contextualization, everybody has a point where they think contextualization has gone too far. Yeah. While others will say it's not far enough. You you mean like contextualization has gone too far when like on an Easter Sunday service at New Spring, uh, they open up the Easter Sunday service with Highway to Hell by ACDC? Maybe that's a contextualization gone too far. While others say it hasn't gone far enough, Perry Noble would make that case. So there is a spectrum with little to no contextualization on one end, actually actual zero contextualization is impossible, and total contextualization on the other end. To help mark degrees within the spectrum, we could use a scale, say C1 uh, to C6, as mentioned in an earlier post. I care about contextualization because I care about clear gospel, a clear gospel proclamation. This is what Stetzer says. He says, I care about the church, and I think that many biblically-driven churches need to think deeply and their context to engage it effective, uh, effectively. Tim Keller is right when he says, quote, A looming crisis for all American evangelical churches is that they cannot thrive outside of the shrinking enclaves of conservative and traditional people and culture. We have not created the new ministry and communication models that will flourish and grow in the coming post-Christian, very secular Western world. Our vision should be to develop campus ministries, new churches, Christian education, discipleship systems that are effective in those fields in North America. I have no idea what that what that quote means. In other words, quote, we need contextualization. Oh, okay, so the, all of that was just to say that Tim Keller says we need contextualization. <clears throat> Let me continue. There are some leaders who would say they are against contextualization. We might put them on the scale at C1. Of course, I think it's kind of strange to say I don't believe in engaging culture or contextualizing while wearing a suit that became popular 50 years ago, singing music that became popular 100 years ago, or an instrument that became popular 300 years ago, on furniture that became popular 600 years ago. But for the sake of discussion, we can put such a person at C1. So, okay, so in order to contextualize, let me see if we got this right. We have to wear different clothes, sing popular current music. Um, We need to use instruments that are currently popular in the culture and furniture that is currently popular in the culture. I didn't he wait a second here. Hang on a second here. Didn't Ed Stetzer say, in fact, let me back up one, two, three paragraphs. Ed Stetzer said, quote, I care about contextualization because I care about clear gospel proclamation. 
Oh, so here, here's the question I have: How does um, how does not using um, popular trendy hipster clothing on your pastor? How does that detract or make it so the gospel can't be preached clearly? I mean, I'm granted. I mean, you all can't see me. <clears throat> um. But I, I have a fine body for radio. I am an underweight fat guy. But you can't see me. You can't see what I'm wearing right now. You don't know if I'm wearing shorts and Birkenstock sandals or if I'm dressed in my Sunday best with a tie and a, and a, and a very nice suit to go with it and, and, and a dr- nice blue dress shirt. You don't know what I'm wearing. So... um. Do you think because you don't know what I'm wearing that I cannot communicate the gospel clearly to you? Or do you think that it's impossible for somebody to clearly communicate the gospel to you if they are dressed in a conservative attire and not in a hipster, you know, rat, you know, rat nest haircut with uh, the Rob Bell glasses? So, I mean, a question I just got to ask. Do you think that the guys who who have the rat's nest haircuts and wear the cool hip V-neck, you know, t-shirts with the with the uh, rock and roll sports blazer and um and wear the Rob Bell glasses that they actually communicate the gospel clearer than somebody who's dressed in a tie? Okay. He said he cares about contextualization because he cares about clear, uh, clear gospel proclamation. So now I got to ask the next question. I mean, do you think that only somebody, a church, only a church that sings the latest contemporary Seven Eleven praise songs, is capable of clearly communicating the gospel, or that they clearly communicate the gospel better than a church that sings? hymns, hymns that are not only 100 years old, but in some cases 500 years old, and in some cases even like 1,500, 1500 years old. You ever heard of the Tadeum? So I can I, you know, ask the question, what does age have to do with the timeless gospel? Okay? I mean, if he says it's contextualization is all about clear gospel proclamation— are we saying that music, only contemporary music, clearly communicates the gospel in today's day and age? Or um, or that you're not clearly communicating the gospel if your church has pews rather than theater-style seating that, rec- you know, where you got the cup holders and the, and the chairs reclined back? I mean, it's... <clears throat> You see, again, you know, I thought he was talking about communicating the gospel, and the, and here he's talking about the you know basically the trappings of a particular church building. Hmm. Hmm. I'm gonna have to come back to this. I'm gonna have to come back to this. You know, you, I think it's time for me to try to see if I can't get Ed Stetzer to come on this program because you know. Uh, I, he seems like you know a bureaucrat who talks out of both sides of his mouth, and I need to be able to nail him down because he doesn't seem to be communicating clearly here. Anyway, uh, all right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. 
My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Sermon review when we come back from the Dream Center. Yeah, it's all about, you know, preaching against those things that would kill your dreams. Hmm. You don't want to miss it. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Are you tired of giving gifts that are as boring as elevator music? I mean, how many ties and dust-collecting paperweights does a person need? Well, Pirate Christian Radio has the perfect solution to boring gifts. The answer is Cloud9 Living. Cloud9 Living offers more than 1,600 unique and memorable experience gifts in 42 cities nationwide. Gifts such as hot air balloon rides, dinner cruises, stock car racing, skydiving, and combat aircraft dogfighting. Cloud9 Living has gifts for every taste and every budget. For more information on Cloud9 Living, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. You'll be glad that you did. We're back, hour number two of Fighting for the Faith.
sermon, well, sermon in quotation, sermon review time today. You know, um, just thinking about this, um, I remember attending Pentecostal churches where you were considered, well, not really a Christian if you didn't speak in tongues. Well, the purpose-driven church movement, um, you're not a Christian unless you have a big purpose for your life. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the Dream Center in Los Angeles, California. Now, the standard pastor, the guy who's the head pastor there, is not the one preaching. The lead pastor is a gentleman by the name of Pastor Matthew Barnett. Today's sermon, though, is uh, uh, preached by a gentleman by the name of Mark Bruchel of the Champions Church in uh, Great Britain. The name of the sermon... Dream Killers. Yeah. Now, I just said that uh, in the purpose-driven church, you're not really, you're kind of sub-Christian unless you have a big purpose for your life. Wait till you hear this one. It's, um, wow. That's about all I can say. <laughs> wow is the word. Now, as we listen to the sermon, listen to how he handles God's word. And keep in mind, again, this kind of goes back to a standard thing that we talk about here a lot here at Fighting for the Faith. And that is, you cannot create a Christian doctrine unless there's a clear teaching in the word of God. This is going to be another adventure in eisegesis and completely missing the point. So you do... You just, uh, I would tell you to get out your Bible and turn to a particular passage. Unfortunately, we've got some problems here in the sense that well he's going to be taking verses ripping them out of context and weaving them together in some kind of a story vis-a-vis -vis the liars club which is you know the technique we talked about here at fighting for the faith let me kill this music so uh, without any further ado here's mark uh, bruchel and uh, the name of this sermon is uh, dream killers uh, here, here we go pastor matthew came on the 14th of january along with Aaron, to the opening of the Champions Church Grand Opening. And uh, it was fantastic. Our church has grown 50% in six months. That's an amazing thing to happen. And we really appreciate that. But you know, it was a 17-year dream that became a reality on the 14th of January. Because in 1992, God gave me a dream to build this church, Champions Church UK. And 17 years later, having prayed every other Friday morning at 7 o'clock for 17 years with my dad and just a few other men, and every Friday morning came, and we went through the first winter, summer, spring, autumn, and then we did it 17 times. And every time for 17 years, we'd look from the old field, the two-acre site, which is only small for here, but in England, that's big. And we looked and said, you know, one day we'll be standing on the car park of our new church. One day we'll be standing looking at the building. And every year for 17 years, and on the 14th of January this year, 
we saw that amazing reality. We opened the 828-seater Champions Church in England, so which we thank God for this evening. And yeah, I, I'm convinced. Uh, you know, this we're we're seeing a lot of churches go up called the Champions Church. Um, and uh, we what that Joel Osteen, you know, what's his big tagline? Discover the champion in you. Yeah, I was off key. Get over it. Anyway, um, the point is, is that um, what's missing here is Jesus Christ, when uh, right before he ascended in heaven, told the apostles to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. So um, if your theology, uh, the theology that you subscribe to, isn't about proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, but instead is about, well, helping people discover the champion inside, help them discover their God-given dream. Uh, The problem is no longer sin and the forgiveness of sins, and the gospel isn't about forgiveness of sins. Apparently, the gospel has changed to something that has to do with... um, uh, you know, finding your God-given dream. Yeah, listen as this develops. I'm I'm getting a, ahead of myself a little bit, or ahead of the sermon a little bit. And the reason why is because I think it's important that you have these thoughts in your head as you're listening to this and as this sermon develops. And we also, at the same time, if it's okay, I believe to mention my book, that I launched also on the 14th of January. Yeah, I didn't know. Sure, go ahead. Tell us about your book. The reason for this book, I want you to know this, that I haven't come here this evening with any personal agenda. The honor of being here is enough in itself. But I want to just mention this, that this book was written by myself, 18 chapters of faith-building Miracle working stuff. The 17 year journey to help people like you and people like me never ever to give up on your dream. Never give up. Okay, just a real quick question. Now, I, I, I know that many of you who are listening to this program have not actually read uh, much in the Church Fathers. That being the case, uh, I'm just going to ask the question, and it's pretty easy to uh, answer this question because what you find in the patristics is you know the, a, a really, really tenacious um, desire to stick close to what's called the apostolic doctrine or the apostolic teaching or the tradition of the apostles, which is summarized basically in, in, in the creeds, uh, like the Nicene Creed and, or the Apostles' Creed. Yeah, you know, it's, it's it, think of it as an apostolic meta narrative. You know, kind of an ordering of of how we understand uh, what the the central message of the Christian faith is and how we understand the Bible. And it it creation, redemption, sanctification. You know, the work of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, God. You know, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, was made man, was crucified also 
for us under Pontius Pilate, suffered and was buried. Third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge both the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. Uh, I believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. I mean, that kind of gives you like you know the thumbnail st- st- uh, sketch, the grand sweep of the center of Christian theology, focusing on on, uh, on the work of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, uh, acting in history for the salvation of humanity, to save sinners. That's what Christ was doing on the cross. So the question that I wanted to get to is, is it, you know, in the patristics, you know, the writings of the early uh, Christian church fathers, the early leaders of the Christian church, how many of them talked about this important, uh, this aspect of discovering your God-given dream? Uh, you know, I I can't recall any of the church fathers discussing this. Why? Because this isn't Christian doctrine. This is not Christian preaching you're hearing. This is literally preaching to scratch itching ears, and basically, it this is a hijacking of you know the Bible, uh, the Christian God, Jesus Christ, at least those terms, and pouring into the Christian faith stuff that is. That was never there. It's not there. So, yeah, this is this is some seriously bad preaching that we're going to hear here. And you need to kind of keep all this stuff framed in your mind as you're listening. And so, one day I needed 186,000 pounds, which is $250,000, and I needed it in nine days. And the next morning, I just knelt silently in prayer, and this is the prayer. God, I don't need a miracle tomorrow. I need one today. And that was the best prayer to pray. Right on the nose, straight to heaven. And two days early, we got that amount of money to the contractor, and God did it. Brilliant. That's the title of the book. And whoever is looking for now, a mir- now notice something that particular miracle is being held out as proof that uh, this what this guy is preaching is true. That's the miracle that substantiates uh, whatever it is that you're going to hear in this sermon. You see, how does he know what he's preaching is correct? Well, because he was in dire need of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and he prayed a prayer, and God answered the prayer, and this miracle proves. What he is preaching is from God. Yeah, that's what's going on here. See, miracles are always signs to buttress and support a doctrine, a theology, a message, a gospel. Just because miracles have happened does not, does not, does not not in any way, shape, or form validate the message if the message contradicts or twists Scripture. So I don't doubt that he miraculously got that $250,000 that he needed. Based on what, I, what I've what i heard in this sermon, I've listened to the whole thing, 
And what you're going to hear, I would basically say, yep, true miracle to support a false message. You have to think this way because the scriptures make it clear that in the last days that uh, basically false Christ and false prophets would arise and perform signs and wonders and mislead, if possible, even the elect. So he's hold up, he's basically shilling for his book here. But that miracle, it's, it's preached at a strategic point in this sermon in order to create the illusion that God is the one who is supporting him and God is the one who is blessing him. And this miraculous miracle of this money shows that this guy's a man of God and what he's preaching is the truth. I don't care if he raises somebody from the dead on the stage and there are three doctors there to confirm that the the corpse that was on the stage was truly dead and had been dead for a while. There was no pulse. There was no uh, body heat. There was nothing. God, dead, 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 doobie, 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 dead, dead. doesn't matter if he raised that person from the dead. If what he preaches contradicts or twists God's word, it is not God who performed the miracle. This is what it means to be tough-minded in your Christian faith because Christ warned us that there would be miracle workers in the last day and that they would perform signs and wonders and that they would mislead, if possible, even the elect. Miracle tonight, or whoever has a dream and you never wanted to give up on it, then read the book. It's called God, I Don't Need a Miracle Tomorrow. I Need One Today. Special price this evening, of course, $10 per book. We have a few left this evening. That will be great. Well, tonight's message is called Dream Killer. Because here we are in the dream center in the Angelus Temple, on the back of a 17-year dream of mine. And I just want to say this. We have been pastoring the same church now for 22 years. 49 years ago, I started going to that church. Pastoring it now for 22 years. The church was leaderless for 54 years. An old Baptist chapel. There's some pictures in the book even of me when I had hair. Tonight's message I really feel on my heart is called Dream Killer. I want to begin with a story of a man in England who was working his way in the kitchen, working away in the kitchen with a sharp knife. Not a good thing for a man to be with a sharp knife in a kitchen. And as he's slicing through some vegetables, he slices straight through into his hand, cuts himself badly, calls to his wife in the other room and said, Love, I've cut myself badly. I think I need to get to hospital. So she comes in and like a good wife, wraps his hand round with a towel and bundles him off into the car. She sits him in the passenger seat and drives to accident and emergency very quickly. He gets to the casualty. Is that called the casualty department here? Fine, accident emergency department. And um, so she said, I'll wait in the parking lot while you go inside. And when you're ready, I'll be waiting in the car for you. So he goes into the hospital. And to his surprise, he just walks into casualty department. And he finds himself in a room on his own. No windows, no pictures, no chairs, nobody. But two doors. On the one door... It said the word male. On the other, it said female. So he walked through the door, male, obviously. 
from, the, from that door. He then found himself, to his amazement, inside another door. No windows, no chairs, no pictures, no people, no nothing. It just said on what but two doors. One door said over 40, the other door said under 40. And so he went through the over 40s door. To his amazement and annoyance this time, he also went into another room, again the same. No windows, no chairs, no people, just two doors. The first door said upper body, the second one said lower body. So he looked at himself and thought, this is a lower, this is an upper body thing. So he walked through the upper body door. To his annoyance, he finds himself in a further room with no windows, no chairs, no people, just two other doors. On one door it said serious, and on the other door it said non-serious. So he looked at himself and thought, well, I'm not dying from this, so I'm not so serious. So he went through the non-serious door and found himself back in the parking lot. <laughs> with his head... With his head held down, feeling a little disappointed to say the least... He walked back to the car, opened the car door, sat in the passenger seat, and his wife looked at him and said, did they help you? To which he replied, no, but they sure were organized. <laughs> Friends, this evening, it is very easy to have everything organized. It's great to have organized church. We are very organized people as you are. It's great to have a pastor, sometimes, you know, that's got an organized message. But the truth is this, after 22 years, I found out that if you're organized and not helping anybody, you may as well forget it. So I want you to know tonight. I just want to <clears throat> remind you all that this particular joke is not found in the Bible. So he's not beginning in Scripture, he's beginning with a joke that apparently m makes a, a, well, a godly point because he's supposedly preaching. Right. that this is not just a well-preached, well-oiled message. I am bringing this sincerely from my heart to you tonight. And I want you to know I'm here, I pray, to help somebody. This message is called Dream Killer. I want to begin by saying this in the remaining moments that we have tonight. And I want to begin by saying you may not realize tonight... You may not think it tonight, you may not understand it tonight, but inside of you is something locked up from the day that you were born. Okay, now, listen carefully to what he's going to say here. Locked up inside of you is something that has been with you since the day you were born. Where does the Bible clearly and unequivocally say this answer it doesn't you have to read this into the scripture in order to come to this conclusion the bible says nothing of the sort in fact i would offer as kind of a counterpoint uh ephesians chapter 2 ephesians chapter 2 or we could even go to Romans uh, chapters 1 through 3, but let me, give, me the, give you the concise version of this. Paul, writing to the Ephesian church, says this, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's right. You were dead in trespasses and sins, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So does the Bible teach, is the Christian message that locked up inside of you is is is, is a God-given dream? No, the Bible doesn't teach any of this at all. And that something is called a dream. It's planted by God, by the Holy Spirit. It's a dream locked up inside every man, every woman, every young person, every child. And it's locked up inside of you. Again, I just asked the question, where does the Bible say this? It doesn't. No. In fact, I defy any of you who agree with um with, with this guy. Um give me the verses that say this clearly. Show me unequivocally from the clear teaching in the word of God where that says every man, every woman, every child has within them a God-given dream planted there by the Holy Spirit. Produce the verses. Throughout life, God will water and energize that dream. And I just want to refer to Jeremiah chapter 1 this evening very quickly. And in Jeremiah chapter 1, it simply says in the NIV version, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. Before I formed you and before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Our sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a child. And God said, do not say, I'm only a child. And I want to say to everyone here in Angela's Temple this evening, that when you were born, God did not wait for you to pop out of your mother's womb and scratch his head and say, oh my word, what are we going to do with this one now? You may have been the product of a rape. Now, I want to point something out here. Jeremiah chapter 1, this is God talking about Jeremiah's election in Christ before the foundations of the world. This does not mean that everybody has a dream planted inside them. And before he goes on, I want to offer a biblical counterpoint. You can kind of see where he's heading. And if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 7. I'll be reading from the ESV. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 21. I want you to listen carefully to the words of our Lord. And I want to, I mean, this ought to clear up any of the mistakes that this guy is making, at least in your mind. Jesus speaking, this is red letters, Matthew seven twenty one, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, that's the great day of judgment, Christ's return, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, 
did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Notice here, we're talking about people who would make the argument, this side of Christ's return, that they were being used mightily by God for his purposes. They were prophesying in the name of Jesus. They were casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And they were doing many mighty works in the name of Jesus, building big churches growing in attendance, receiving money miracles, the whole nine yards. And this is what verse 23 says, And then I, Jesus, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus says of, that, of the, those who will depart into outer darkness, these people who prophesied in his name, did mighty works in his name, uh, cast out demons in his name, he will say to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. So when this guy goes to Jeremiah chapter 1, the calling of Jeremiah, where God himself, Yahweh, reveals that from the foundations of the earth, not only did he know Jeremiah, but he appointed him to the work that he is to do. We're talking about Jeremiah's election in Christ. Before the foundations of the world, God knew Jeremiah. Contrast this with Christ on the Day of Judgment, sending false teachers and heretics in the Christian church who prophesied in his name, did mighty works in his name, cast out demons in his name, yet never trusted in him, never repented of their sins and were forgiven for their sins, never, never were regenerated by the working of the Holy Spirit. They were tares among the wheat. Jesus says to them, I never knew you. So who are you going to believe? That everybody God knows? Or are you going to believe Jesus? You get the guy who, you know, Mark Bruchel, who's claiming that everybody has this God-given dream planted inside of them, and he's twisting Jeremiah chapter 1, and not giving us really biblical teaching at this point, just the semblance of it. He's doing the heresy two-step. Let's continue. You may have been the product of a loveless marriage. You may have been the product of a one-night stand. You may have been the product of parents that separated, divorced, and left you feeling annoyed and angry like we've heard tonight. Where have we heard this before? Oh, this line, you you may have been a product of a you know of a one night stand, at, you know, but this is all Rick Warren's teaching. This is the stuff that's taught in the purpose driven life. This is part of Rick Warren's stump shtick for the past fifteen years or more. This is Rick Warren's doctrine, false doctrine, 
now poisoning the body of Christ. You're hearing Rick Warren being echoed in other people. You know, you could be the product tonight of a family that never loved you, never told you they loved you. You may have never had a person put their arms around you. You may have never had a mother sit her on, your, on her knee and say, I love you, we are proud of you. You may have never known who your father was. He may have never ever said, well done, well done son, well done daughter, that's fantastic. But you need to take a step back and see from God tonight that he didn't wait for you to be born to say, well done. He says, before you were born, I knew you. And you need to know tonight that God had a plan even before you were, as we say in England, a twinkle in your mom and dad's eye. Before they ever got together, God saw you, he knew you, he had a purpose for your life, and he had a plan for your life. And there may be hundreds of people, there may be one person in this room tonight who says, Mark, I feel like a mistake. You may feel like a mistake, but that doesn't make you a mistake. You may have made many a mistake, but you need to know tonight that God did not create you as a mistake. The circumstances surrounding you may have felt like a mistake. You may have feel like tonight you should have never been born. But you need to know, Almighty God placed a dream in your life and in your heart before you ever set foot on this planet. I don't know about you. Uh, the text doesn't say that at all. And you're taking Jeremiah's individual calling and election and universalizing it, and which it should not be universalized because Jesus shows us in the Sermon on the Mount that Jeremiah's call cannot be universalized because those who go into outer darkness, he never knew them. But on the first day, on the first day, our first grandson, Noah Freedom, was born. We were at the hospital. We were at the hospital like within the first hours of him being born. We couldn't wait to see it. And then, of course, other people came. And we got pushed out the way. And then other people came. And aunts and uncles and friends and people they hadn't seen for years came. They all wanted to pat little Noah on the head and say, well done. Do you know something? God didn't wait for you to be born to see you. He saw you before you were born. He saw you. Come on, is anybody here this evening? So therefore, it doesn't even matter what family you were born into because God already had a plan. You may have failed at... Now notice, this is apparently good news. This isn't the good news of the gospel. Christ crucified for our sins, calling us to repent and be forgiven, to be regenerated through the working of the Holy Spirit. No, this is good news that, wow, before even the foundations of the earth were laid, God knew you. You're not a mistake. Oh, that's great news. Do you have anything that actually deals with my sin problem and the fact that and despite the fact I'm not a mistake, I am a rebel sinner who has transgressed God's law greatly. School, you may have failed as a husband, failed as a wife. 
You may be the worst drunkard on the planet. You could be the worst prostitute around. But you need to know God has a plan for your life. He has a brilliant... You might be the worst prostitute around, but good news is God has a plan for your life. No, the good news is Christ died for your sins. You might be a drunkard, but but the worst of drunkards. The good news is not, oh, but God has a plan for your life. No, the good news is that Christ died for your sin of drunkardness. It's not really a word, but you get what I'm saying. You see how this is a completely false and counterfeit gospel that takes our eyes off of the Christ? It takes our eyes off of Jesus. It takes our eyes off of the the biblical gospel of Christ and him crucified for our sins. And it, uh, the good news now is not Christ died for your sins, but the good news is now, now, oh, look, you might be the worst of sinners. You might be the a drunk. You might be a prostitute. You might be a wife beater. But God has a plan for your life. <gasps> really? Wow, I didn't know I was that important. Yeah, where's the cross? Where's um, repentance and the forgiveness of sins? Where's the message that he was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities? No, apparently... Uh, See, God's been holding out on you. He's a, he's got this big, big, big plan for your life. Yeah, he's going to do big things through you. I mean, shake the world down to its very core and foundations through you. But see, he's waiting for you to make a decision to become a Christ follower so that then he can reveal, reveal this great plan. But see, I mean, this is all ego-building um, delusions of grandeur at this point. Dream for your life. A fantastic plan. You know something, the reason I was born, I was born second child, middle child to Dennis and Gwen Birchall. They're both 79 years of age, still in our church. And they still say to me, Mark, right now, this is the best years of our life. They've been in the church for 79 years, the same church. I was born their middle son. I've totally forgot what I was going to say. (laughs) That makes me normal. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I woke this morning with a great big feeling of ordinariness, which helps. And I haven't got a clue. I think I was their second son. Oh, yes, my wife is here for a reason as well. you know something they didn't just have me as a son there was a reason I was born there's a problem that you are meant to solve there's a problem in LA tonight there's a problem you're meant to solve apparently uh, you're like a mini messiah you see you're the anointed one you just don't know it you've got to save part of the world you've been called and destined for this great plan in the future people will be writing songs about you that's got your name on it 
There's a problem in England that had Mark Birchall's name on it. I was born a follower, not a leader. But God had me be a leader because the reason I was born, because of the state of the British church. And God said, Mark, it's got your name on it. And that's why I'm here. We have a little saying in England. The reason people don't come to church is because they've been. You know something? I'm meant to solve that problem. That's why I'm here. That's why you're here. So I just want to mention in the moments that we have this evening remaining. I want to ask you a question before I say just three quick things. So why is it that many of us live more mundane, boring, even selfish lives? Life's too short to be average, we hear. So why do we go for that? Here's the answer. I believe after 22 years of pastoring a church, I believe it's because we don't survive the process of sabotage on our dreams. I believe. So I'm going to give you three things. Where is that taught in the Bible? Why do you live an ordinary and mundane life? Because many of us don't survive the satanic sabotage of our dreams. <gasps> what? Where is this taught in the Bible? Talk about scratching, itching ears. You know, it says, you know, that's what Paul said. In the last days, people will not endure sound doctrine, but will surround themselves with teachers who will teach them what their itching ears want to hear. I mean, wow, talk about an itching ear scratching kind of sermon. You have a God-given dream that was given to you before the foundations of the earth. God wants to do something powerful in you. You are so special. And I'm going to teach you how to survive and, and ward off the dream killers. That I believe you have to overcome if you're going to survive what I call the process of sabotage. Many people have tried to take me out, take me down, members of my own family. Within the first few months of me pastoring the church, a third of my own family left and have never spoken since. Three things. By the way, it's worth remembering there are no great men of God. There are only ordinary men with a great God. So you need to know. You need to know that's you. And there are no great women of God. There are ordinary women with a great God. So it's got your name on it. This message has tonight. The first thing you need to survive very quickly is what I call cheap words. Cheap words. Cheap words come out of lots of people's mouths. They are only cheap to the person giving them. Let me give you some. You're useless. You'll never amount to anything. Why can't you be like your brother? 
I wish you'd never been born. Why are you so stupid? You're a mistake. I wish we'd never had you. Cheap words fall easily from a person's mouth. A parent, a teacher, even somebody in the church sometimes. You, you know the tragedy of this right here, don't you? That there are people who, are, who will hear this message who will have had somebody say those awful things to them and they're going to feel like they're hearing from God. When in reality, what's happening at this point is those people who have heard those words and uh, experienced that type of abuse, this is Satan trying to lure them in so they can drag them into hell. That's the terrible part about this, is that here they feel like they're finally hearing somebody who understands what they've gone through, and they're excited to hear that God has a big plan for their life, when in reality, uh, they're actually the ones who are being fished for uh, to be drugged into hell. But they are the most expensive words when you receive them. So expensive that they cause people to take their own lives in suicide. So expensive that they take out people's dreams. So that you will go to your grave average. You'll go to your grave never having fulfilled your destiny. Have a guess what? Most people who give cheap words are dead long before you. So you need to just put them in the place now. Cheap words. Cheap words steal dreams. Ladies, gentlemen, young people, be careful who you listen to. So many people want to take you down, take you out. Proverbs 18.1 says, life and death is in the power of the tongue. You need to know that somebody with a wicked tongue can take out your dream. Now you need to step over it and you need to point a finger and say, oh, shut your face. I'm not having it. Just, just last Sunday, the reason I'm smiling is because we got to go to Yuma. Yuma. Myself and Jillian, we, you know, we, as part of our holiday, we got to go to Yuma. Somebody said to me, and Pastor Matthew said to me, the same thing that somebody else said to me, what on earth did you go there for? I said, well, it was only to preach for one night. Well, one Sunday. This Sunday gone, myself and Jillian drove to Yuma. We got up on Sunday morning and preached four times back to back, starting at nine, finishing at two, with a 10 minute break in between each service. God is doing an amazing thing. Interestingly, our church is called Champions Church. Their church is called Champion Church. We know relation. Just so happened that they invited me to go. And uh, amazing church that's been grown up there, nearly 1,500 people now. And um, in the third service, I'm sitting on the front row and I glance across to a young girl that I thought was about 15 or 16 years of age. And the Holy Spirit said to me, when you get up the third time to preach, point at her and give her her word over her life. 
So I got up to preach the third time, and half, to be honest, I forgot. And halfway through the message, I went, oh. And I said, this young lady on the front, it turns out she was 11 years of age. She looked 15, 16. And I just didn't know what I was going to say. It came out of my mouth. And I just said, love, I just want to say this. God has told me to speak to you today. And I'm supposed to say to you, it doesn't matter what they've said or words to this effect. You just need to know it doesn't matter what they say. You need to listen to what God's saying. doesn't matter what you've been through. God's got a fantastic plan for your life. And on and on it went just for a few minutes. And she looked fairly emotionless about the whole thing. So I just carried on. <laughs> well, at the end of the fourth service, we heard this story. She's 11 years of age, sexually abused, raised by a grandparent, grandmother, hated at school, abused, ridiculed, all, everything that was said, and she was just overwhelmed. And I just want to say tonight, as we started by saying it's time to help somebody here, that you need to know that God wants to reverse the curse over your life. The second thing you need to do to survive the dream is be careful of familiar voices. In England, we've got lots of really spiritual people. They really annoy me. <laughs> so this is what I say. We don't want really spiritual people in our church. We want spiritually real people in our church. And... The really spiritual people, you know, they, and I know there's none here tonight, but just, the really spiritual people, they are always thinking about the devil and somebody out there is going to ruin it. Well, I've got first-hand information tonight. Can I give you an announcement? Here we go. It's those closest to you, the familiar voices that sometimes are the ones that want to kill your dream. I found this. By oh, no. The, it, uh, the, there's people out there that are close to me that want to kill my dream. <laughs> well, I'll never have my dream come true then. What can I do, Pastor? Oh, help me. This is ridiculous. I mean, seriously, now we've got to distrust the people around us because they actually might secretly be wanting to kill your dream. Yeah. Oh, the world that we live in. Forget terrorists. Forget murderers, rapists, abortionists. and uh, Forget the, those out there who are murdering people in droves and forget about wars and all that kind of... No, no, no. The, the real threat to you... <laughs> Those people who are close to you, who want to kill your dream. Oh, the humanity. Pastor Matthew as well, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. People out there can't hurt me. Uh, it's water off a duck's back. That's an English saying. It's probably here as well. It's the people closest to me that can hurt me. You always hurt the one you 
love. Familiar voices. In Genesis 37, we have the story, no time to read it tonight, of the world's greatest dreamer. London has made more money off this dream than anybody in history. Joseph and his technical dream coat. He's been in London now. He's been resurrected for the last 50 years at least. I mean, anyway, the Bible says in Genesis 37 that he told his brothers, probably too early, definitely too early, by the way, if God has given you a dream, keep your mouth shut until the right time and he told his brothers oh one day you're going to bow down to me now I've got two sons and that would really really go down well if one son said to the other by the way big bro you're going you're to bow down to me one day he'd go fantastic <laughs> anyway point is this that the Bible makes from the moment Joseph announced his dream it was his brother's that set out to kill him. And you need to be careful. Because people closest to you. Your friends. Your mates. Your acquaintances. People in the office. You know people who don't know any better. Even moms and dads sometimes. Can go yeah that's ridiculous. Don't be so silly. Do you know the first lady on the moon. At primary school. That's anything up to the age of 11 in England. The age, I think it was of eight, was asked by her teacher, and what would you like to do? Oh, I'm going to be an astronaut. Her teacher said, don't be so silly. Get a real dream. Well, have a guess who's laughing on the other side of her face right now. She made it to the moon. Her teacher made it to the grave. Uh, did I miss something here? Um... I don't recall a female astronaut going to the moon. Um, maybe it was a... I, if you know who this woman is who's been to the moon, please email me because I'm just not familiar with her story. I'm not saying it didn't happen, but then again, the question comes up. Did Jesus Christ die and rise again so that this woman could go to the moon? I don't know who this woman is who's been to the moon. Hey, let's Think about this. The dream killer is always after the seed of your dream. You see, if the seed can be stopped, then the church never gets built. The dream never gets fulfilled. It's much more difficult to stop the dream once it's been dreamt. So the dream killer goes for the seed. And so when, 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 who's the guy's name? The one I've just mentioned. Yes, okay, it's my age. <laughs> We've been traveling a lot. Joseph dreamed the dream. Have a guess what? It was literally verses, minutes, hours away that they said, let's kill him. Think about this. When Moses, the deliverer of the people of God, taking millions out of slavery to the promised land within moments of his birth. You know what's really bizarre here? Um, apparently, you don't know it, but you're the next Joseph. You're the next Moses. And apparently everybody listening to him is. It's like, what? 
you know, I, this is like a theology that basically says, listen, you know, you, you know, God, your life is like a movie, you know, and you're the star of your own movie, and you're going to do some heroic, amazing things, and you're going to save the entire Mediterranean world. Um, God's going to use you to spare them during a flood, or God's going to help, basically raise you up and give you the dream so that you can lead millions out of Egypt. Yeah, see, here's the deal. All of those stories were God graciously protecting the line of the Messiah so that he could save us through his shed blood on the cross. Yeah, when you read the history of Israel, it's not that God was raising up a bunch of dreamers. God gave dreams to people and used them mightily in order to act in history and to save the line of the Messiah so that he can be born and die on the cross for our sins and call the world to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name. The Bible's the story about Jesus. It's about God acting on behalf of humanity. This guy's got it 180 degrees backwards. He's missing the point. The point wasn't Joseph's dream. The point was how God used Joseph to spare the line of the Messiah. It's about Jesus. Pharaoh said, kill all the boys. They wanted, he wanted to get to the seed. From the moment Jesus Christ was born, Savior of the world, Herod said, kill all the boys. You need to remember that if somebody's going to attack it, they'll go for the seed. If you can just step over that person then the dream has a chance of becoming a reality in your life today. Survive it. Oh, this is just ego-inflating delusions of grandeur. Oh, for Pete's sake. I mean, the Apostle Paul tells the, 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 the church to work quietly and diligently with their hands and mind their own business and the vocation God has put them into doesn't say big dream, big dreams. And you become a deliverer of people. Okay, got to back this up. You have to hear this in context. Oh, Nellie, apparently uh, you're the next Messiah. Listen up. Herod said kill all the boys. You need to remember that if somebody's going to attack it, They'll go for the seed. If you can just step over that person, then the dream has a chance of becoming a reality in your life today. Survive it, and you become a deliverer of people. What on earth? We're all little mini messiahs. We can become the deliverer of peoples. Oh, man. I Wow. Holy guacamole. Finally this evening, I don't speak a lot about devilish, demonic stuff. We need to be careful we don't give the devil credit for authority he doesn't have. Uh, boy, is is he teaching anything that's actually in the Bible? No, this is just his bizarre and warped eisegesis of these texts. Yet when you read them in context, they don't say any of the stuff that he's saying. 
Talk about demonic. This is demonic. But listen carefully. In 2 Corinthians 11, it says we should not be unaware of the devil's devices. He has no new tricks, by the way. He just repeats himself time and time again. So once you've been around the block a few times, you get to know the way he works. The third point is this. Demonic confrontation. Demonic confrontation. Sometimes we can make too little of the devil. Some people make too much of him. We should not be unaware of his devices. In Luke 3, it's the baptism of Jesus. And he's in the water, coming up out of the water. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes upon him like a dove. You know, I got to pause right here. He's right. We should be aware of the uh, devil's devices. And he pointed us to Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11, which in light of what we're hearing in this so-called sermon, I think it'd be good to <clears throat> review. Second Corinthians chapter 11, if you have your Bible, flip on over there and uh, let's read what the Apostle Paul warns us about the schemes of the devil. Paul writes, he says, I, I wish you would bear with me a, a little foolishness. Please do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So Paul, in, this, in the opening verses of this uh, chapter, of this section of the uh, second letter to the Corinthian church, talks about the cunning of Satan, the serpent, and how he deceived Eve, our first mother, by his cunning and led her thoughts astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's what Satan does. He gets our eyes off of Christ, gets our eyes off of what his word really says. Here's what Paul says. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one that we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles, even if I'm unskilled in speaking. I am not so in knowledge, indeed, in every way that we have made this plain to you in all ways. So the way, this, the way Satan works, according to the Apostle Paul, is he leads people astray from a sincere devotion to Christ through his cunning. And how does Satan apply his cunning? He comes up with counterfeit Jesuses, counterfeit spirits, and counterfeit gospels. That's what Paul said. So then this begs the question, is all of this dream talk that Mark Rochelle here is uh, talking about, is that the real gospel? Is the good news that the Christian church is to proclaim that God has this amazing plan for your life so that you can deliver people, you can be a deliverer, and God has to protect that dream? No, that's a different gospel. 
And the Jesus he's preaching necessarily is a different Jesus. And the Holy Spirit that he's talking about here is necessarily a different Holy Spirit than the biblical one, the one in the Bible. Because the biblical Holy Spirit would never, never lead people astray from a pure and sincere devotion to Christ. In fact, the biblical Holy Spirit is the one who, according to the Apostle John, Jesus said, would convict the world of sin and unbelief and point people to Christ and him crucified for our sins. So now we've got a problem. Here, uh, Mark Bruchel is talking about the cunning plans of the devil, but apparently the devil's all about stealing your dream. No, he's not. The devil's all about cunningly stealing Jesus away from you and leading you astray into a false gospel with a false Jesus and a false spirit. Sounds like this has already happened to Mark Bruchel. And a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Let me repeat that. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 17 verses later. The devil comes to Jesus, who the Bible says is full of the Holy Spirit. 17 verses later from the announcement, this is my beloved son, the devil says, if you are the son of God. We need to be aware that all hell is after your dream. No, hell is not after your dream. Hell is after you. Not your dream. Hell is after you to drag you into hell. Let me make this statement loud and clear. The first thing the devil will challenge in your life is what God has just affirmed in your life. The first thing the devil will challenge in your life is what, the, what God has just affirmed for your life. Have you ever noticed this? Every time you take a step of faith, there's something to push you back. We need to be aware, friends, in this day and age, as they did in the days of old, when Angela's temple was launched in 1920-something, whatever it was, we need to get back to those days of understanding. I am who I am by the grace of God. But we also need to understand if the devil can take you out, he will take your dream out. He will take a generation of people with you. Oh, man. The devil is, is, is going to take your dream out. What a complete load of bovine scatology. There isn't a clear passage in the scripture that says anything remotely as asinine as this. Because you never, ever dreamt the dream. Because he took you out. And the first thing he will say to you is, when God says to you, he speaks into your heart. And he will say to you, now God never really said that. When God says to you, go and do this. What about giving a few hundred thousand dollars to the dream center? The devil will say, oh no, God never said that. <sighs> 
a, a few hundred thousand dollars to the dream. Yeah, there we go. There's the motive. Money. And he will take you out. 19 years of age. Time has gone. Did you say I had another five on that clock there? At 19 years of age, I was raised a very strict Baptist. No speaking in tongues, they were of the devil. Electricity was of the devil. (laughs) Guitars, they were definitely demonic. Anything to do with the Holy Spirit was cut out of the Bible. So I was raised a very strict Baptist, wet all over. And that was my upbringing. So into that context, get what's about to happen to me. I get saved at 17, at 19. I have a vision. Now, I want you to know that I'm a very much feet on the ground guy. I'm not up there with the fairies. (laughs) So for me to have a vision, you know, I'm a Baptist. Or I was. I have a vision. And I start to weep, and I couldn't stop. And I looked, cut a long story short, I looked up into heaven, as if that made any difference. And I said, God, what is this all about? And the vision was of what we call, there's a picture of it in the book, the little schoolroom, in which they held the prayer meeting every Monday night with five people. The church was built and born in 1810. It's our 200th anniversary this year. Obviously, I wasn't around, but then, be careful. <laughs> and the vision was of the, little ba- of, of the little schoolroom in the Baptist chapel. Five people, including my dad. And they prayed every Monday night, Lord, send revival. Lord, revive this church, do something. And nothing ever happened. And I saw a vision of that room. I saw a vision of those people. And I said to God through the tears rolling out my face, what does this mean? And God whispered in my ear in an audible voice, just as if he was standing right with me, Mark, one day you will be the pastor of that church. And it broke my heart. And I said, I'm never going to tell a living soul because you're big enough to walk all on your own. I'm not going to tell anybody. And if you want it to happen, you'll have to make it happen. I was a trained professional French chef for 10 years. That was my trade. That's what I was, that was my goal in life. I was going to make it big time in London. God broke into that. And without me saying anything to anybody, God did it all by himself. And eight years later, they asked me to become the pastor of the church, age 27. And that's what happened. But I want you to know this, everybody with a dream tonight. I dreamed it, then I doubted it, then I discarded it, and said, that's it. But God never forgot, and he raised it up again. And if I've come six, seven thousand miles for any reason tonight, it's to say to everyone, there, here, here, you're carrying a dream. You're thinking, I, I can't do this. Always remember this, God will never ask you, can you? Because he knows, 
He's wired you up to do what you can, so he never asks, can you or can't you? Because you may say, no, I can't when you can. You know what God looks for? God only asks, will you? You have the choice to say, no, I won't, I. But he will ask, will you? And finally, at the age of 31, years of age, we're preparing for a tent crusade with a thousand people in a tent on a field. And as we're walking away from the prayer meeting, I'm walking up this grassy bank. Same thing again. First time at 19, second one at 31. Only three times in 49 years. And God spoke to me. And his voice propelled me around and said, Mark, buy me that land. I've lived in that town all my life and I never saw a piece of land for sale. And it had been there for 15 years and I'd never noticed. And yeah, notice how God's constantly talking to him. I, I have no other choice but to conclude this is utter blasphemy. Because this guy does not preach the biblical gospel. And what he's preaching is absolute heretical nonsense. This is not God speaking to him. This is either his blasphemous storytelling or the blasphemous whispers of a satanic spirit speaking to him. But this is not God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who is speaking to him at all. And on that day, God said, Mark, buy me that land. 17 years later, we opened the church. And you have to keep dreaming. Come on, let's thank God tonight, shall we? Time has gone. So I'm going to ask, come on, everybody stand. There are three things that people fear most in life. FOF, fear of failure. FOP, fear of people. FOR, fear of rejection. He's not preaching Christ and him crucified for our sins, repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. I don't know what this stuff is. With every head bowed this evening, please, I'm going to ask you to raise a hand. If you need to either pick up a dream, keep dreaming. You know, back in the day, I, you know, I remember altar calls when I was a Nazarene. And generally when people had their heads bowed and their eyes closed and the pastor was leading in prayer, uh, there was some repenting of some real sins going on. You know, people who, you know, were doing terrible, awful, sinful things. Just look at the Ten Commandments if you're not sure what a sin is. Now we got every head bowed and everyone, you know, and apparently people are praying to, to pick up a God-given dream somewhere. Yet none of this, none of this is actually taught in the Bible. God never said it's going to happen tomorrow or the day after the dream came. But I'm a living proof in the faithfulness, the goodness, and the grace of God that if you'll dream and outlast the devil long enough, 
then your dream can become reality. Raise a hand tonight. I would like to pray for you. If you need to pick up your dream, I'm looking downstairs first of all. God bless. He's going to pray for you if you need to pick up your dream. Apparently mine's on will call at Walmart somewhere. Bless you so many people tonight. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Too many to count here. And with your hands raised, I'm going to ask every young person that wants to say yes to Jesus, yes to his dream. What? Everybody who wants to say yes to Jesus and yes to his dream. What is this guy smoking? Always remember God is always looking for somebody through whom to dream. What? Where in the Bible does it say that God is looking for somebody through whom he can dream? Where is any of this nonsense taught in the Bible? It isn't. This is a false gospel, a false Jesus, a false spirit, a false God. Uh, Wow. I want you to raise a hand if you would like God tonight, throughout your lifetime, to dream through you. Oh, my. This is utter blasphemy. This is blasphemy. Raise your hands. Tens of people. Heavenly Father, keep your hands raised. Uh, we're gonna. We gotta hear this one. For every dream, there are tens of changed lives waiting to happen. For every dream tonight, there can be communities changed forever. There's more than one person in this room tonight. And the effects of your dream can change a city. Wow. There could be somebody here tonight who could change even a nation. But together, we can change the world. Uh, There it is, the big dream to change the world. Jesus didn't say, go out and make disciples of all nations. No, 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 no. In their theology, Jesus said, go and change the world. One person at a time. Father, as hands are raised to you tonight, I ask in Jesus' name to touch the hearts of every man and woman, every boy and girl, every young person. I, I don't want your Jesus touching any part of me. I don't want him touching my heart. I don't want him touching my toes. I don't want him touching anything. Your Jesus isn't the biblical Jesus. He's a demon dressed up in a Jesus suit. Don't I don't want him touching nothing on me. Person, God is not interested so much in where you've been to where you are going as from now. In the name of Jesus, Holy Spirit. Fill them, bless them. Okay, wow, 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 wow. Something incredible as a result 
of tonight. In Jesus' name. Let's give God a great round of applause tonight, shall we? There is one word that comes to mind. Demonic. This was demonic. When the scriptures say, when God says in his commandments, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This is what he was referring to. People who teach falsely about him, who claim to be speaking about him or say things authoritatively about him that are so far wrong that they, 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 it's not light that's being preached. It's utter darkness. That's what this was. Dream killer? Dream killer? Yeah, really, really. Satan's all about killing your dreams. You've got to be kidding me. And folks, this church, the dream center where this church was, where this thing was preached, is a very famous well-recognized, growing, seeker-driven church. Perry Nobles preached there, you know. But, I mean, they are, they're they are doing good works because they do a lot to feed the poor. Yeah, the poor may have their bellies filled, but when their ears are filled with this heresy, they're going to hell. Christ is not being preached. This is not sound biblical doctrine. This is not the biblical God that is being proclaimed and exalted. That is not the biblical gospel that you just heard. That is the cunning of the devil to take your eyes off of Christ in a pure and sincere faith and devotion to him and to lead you astray through a false gospel, a false Jesus, and false signs and wonders and every and a false spirit. It's, there's nothing true about this. That was as phony baloney of a counterfeit as, as I've ever heard. And yet, folks, the chances are that you know somebody who attends a church or is caught up in a church in your local area that teaches this exact kind of doctrine. They need to hear from you. You need to open up God's word and spend time pleading with them to hear what God's word really teaches. Satan's not about trying to destroy their dreams. Satan's about trying to destroy them and drag them to hell. That's what Satan is about. You need to reach them with the biblical gospel. You need to pray for them. You need to plead with them. You need to preach the truth to them. If you know somebody who attends the Dream Center or who follows this kind of doctrine or thinks that Mark Bruchel is a man of God, give them this podcast so that they can hear the truth. Wow. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. 
Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to partner with us with, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.